Let's all stand and read together God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I start crying too when I hear a preacher start preaching. I get the idea. We are, uh, we are going through First Peter, but before I do that, let me make a few notes. Um, I, was, I was chatting with the Christiansons, and they're going to try to make Youngstown tonight after the evening service. So if you'd like to visit with them, and I would encourage you to do so, they're very delightful people to get to know, um, they're going to be here at 530 So service starts at six. They're going to be here about a half hour early to visit with y'all. So please come and be and and greet them and and check in with them. We've been talking about First Peter, and we've been talking about uh, big a big deal in First Peter is the whole concept of hope, uh, of cultivating it in our lives and setting our minds. You know, being intentional about setting our minds on hope, right? We, we've talked about that, and, and Peter has talked about that. Back in chapter uh, 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, one of the questions I'm just going to start with this morning is, how did you do this week? Did you take time to intentionally immerse yourself in God's Word Maybe some particular music that's in, uh, that reminds you of the hope that we have in Christ. Uh, perhaps a devotional book that you that you appreciate. What did you do this week to cultivate hope? Because the reality of this life that we live in is that this this world is a messed up place. It, getting through this life, I know there is a brand of Christianity out there that purports that that we can have our best life now, but. That's not the way Peter and, and others in God's word seem to present life. They seem to present life as while sin remains, this life is going to be struggle. There's going to be tribulation. There's going to be happy times. But hear me carefully. For us, in order to us to, be, for us to, to experience joy and happiness as God tells us what those things are, as for us to be able to produce those, we have to be able to look at life realistically, as, as God portrays it in his word. What do I mean by that? Well, if we, if we choose, for example, to take and, and watch social media and, and just see somebody's Facebook feed or their Instagram feed, and we just see people taking pictures of themselves and t- talking about how wonderful their life is, we can start to get a picture of a life that is not real, right? An idealized version of life. And then we can start to feel bad. In fact, this is becoming a major, if you want to call it this, uh, mental health crisis amongst our youth is they're seeing 
their friends post all these pictures of doing great things and going to fun events, and, and, and then they're, they're saying, well, this is, what life, this is what real life must be like, and I'm not experiencing that at all. I'm down here. No, we have to understand that, that we have to help them see a realistic, we have to have a realistic understanding of life. And Peter lays that out. Remember last week we talked about Peter just inundates us at the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two of First Peter, he inundates us with this Exodus imagery, you know, talking about uh, recalling to us uh, the signs and wonders of the Exodus and, the, and the, the temple or the tabernacle. And now that we're living stones, right? And, and all these images that he gives us to help us to understand that our time on earth is very much analogous to the Israelites' Exodus out of Egypt into the wilderness heading towards the promised land. We are spiritual exiles and aliens on this earth and we are heading towards God's promised land, not physically, but spiritually, we're heading towards, well, someday physically, but we're heading towards that promised land. And so it's important for us while we're here to have the right mindset. Peter's setting the table. He's laying it all out. We have to have this Exodus mindset. We talked about that last week. We also talked about how, uh, you know, first Peter is a, is giving us basically like a field manual to life. And we're seeing that again today. So now that Peter has gotten through a lot of the, the ways we should think and, and reminding us of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, now he's going to turn a bit and he's going to go into the practical realities of life. And so I'll start by asking this question. Do you think, does it feel like to you as it feel, feels like to me, and you can respond to this question, does it feel like we're living in a time where everything is political all the time. Are you sick of it? I'm sick of it. And, and one of the things that really brought this to my attention is uh, one of these, I don't know, maybe a few weeks ago, I was listening to a guy named Dennis Prager. You may or may not have heard of him. He's not important, but he's, a, he's an interesting thinker for our times. And I was listening to De- Dennis Prager and, and, and he said something along the lines, I'm paraphrasing heavily, he said, you know, in my life, when I get done with my work day, I want to go home and I want to listen to good music. I want to enjoy the time that I have with my wife. I want to be on the phone talking to my kids. I want to enjoy, you know, he's a cigar smoker. I want to enjoy a good cigar. And I want to live my life that way. But increasingly, he says, it feels like when I get home from a hard day of work, I've got to keep my eye on what my what my leaders are doing out in the government because they're trying to erode our freedoms, right? And, and I just got to keep my, I feel like I've got to keep my eye on every single thing that's going on and it's exhausting and it's depriving me of, of my time with my spouse and my time talking to my kids and all the other things that I enjoy about this life. And I thought that was, <laughs> that was that's true. And so I, it begs the question, why is that? Because in my life, I can tell you, I, it, feels like I'm, it feels like the amount of time that I spend thinking about what our government leaders are doing is increasing over time, not decreasing. And part of that's my own fault for allowing myself to do that. But part of it is there's a lot going on. We'll talk about that as we go. Today, we're really only... Uh, the, the, subject of, the subject of how we as Christians ought to interface with our human government 
is a big topic. It's a controversial topic. It's a topic I don't love to preach about because I'm going to make half of you mad. I'll probably make one half of you mad this week, and I'll make the other half of you mad the next week. Them's the waters, okay? I got broad shoulders. I can take it. What I'm trying to do, I just want to state this again, what I'm trying to do is to expose what the Word of God says, not what I think. So, if you're going to get mad at somebody, uh, I might not do a perfect job of exposing that, and that's why Sean's here today as a Bible uh, college instructor to pull me aside afterwards and, and exhort me, which I'm open to. I'm totally open to that. So today, I'm going to take two weeks to do this message, okay? I'm going to do half of it today, and I'm going to do half next week. So today, we're really going to focus on the first two verses, uh, and then next week, we'll focus on... on the other two, or today I'm going to talk about what government, what human government is, what human institutions are, and maybe how we should think about them, and then next week how we should live in light of that, okay? So that's kind of my basic outline for the next two weeks. Uh, today is what is government, and um, you know, what are the, some of the things that got us to where we're at today, <clears throat> and then how should we think about government, and there you go. So that's the big question. The big question is, what is government, and how should we think about government in the United States of America, because that's where, last time I checked, we live. All right, let's get into it. Number one, what is government? Now, this is what it says in the text. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Uh, and there's the word, every human institution. Now, Again, my ESV Bible has a footnote there, and if you go to the footnote, it says, or every institution ordained for people. Uh, I think in the Greek, it, it really has to do with the idea of, I think the Greek is like institution of people, right? Or something like that, institution of human beings. Um, and, and so what is it? What is an institution for people, or what is a human institution? Well, the text already gives us some clues, right? It says, whether to the emperor as supreme, and again, there's a footnote there that says, or king, so the emperor or the king as supreme. So in this particular form of government, there's a, there's a person that's at the top of the food chain, the emperor or the king, and then it goes on to say, or governors who are sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So apparently there's an emperor or a king and then that person has other people in this text called governors underneath him or her that goes out and executes the law, right? Or whatever, whatever the king wants, uh, whatever the law says, the, the, they do that. And so this idea of human institution has to do with a hierarchy or some sort of an arrangement. I think the official definition uh, go something like this. A human institution is simply a way of organizing society with rules and laws that are somehow enforced. I think I got this from uh, Brown Driver Briggs, a uh, Greek lexicon, uh, that, so, that are somehow enforced. This brings order to life. We all operate, or should at least, under the same set of rules. That's, that's kind of the idea of human government, right? Now, <clears throat> I think you all know what the opposite of that is. The opposite of that is anarchy. And before, before anybody in this room gets to be a big fan of anarchy, uh, I, I don't think we want that. Not, and I think the Christiansons, if you show up at 5.30 tonight, they can probably tell you why anarchy is not a good thing, okay? Anarchy is basically the absence of any form of human government. It's, 
It's just not there. And so you can imagine, right? Uh, I, I've actually, I've, I've traveled to Haiti and I was there and a, and a missionary was trying to do a construction job up on a hill, far, you know, a good distance, a good hike up the hill from town. And uh, that person had failed after they had their first load of materials. This is years ago before wood really spiked up. They had their first load of materials delivered to the job site and then they went home and slept and then they came back and it was gone. Like all of it, the whole stack of wood. It, it, it's a, again, there's no roads up. To, it's, it's a hike up, and uh, I don't know how they got it up there. But they, they, they. So from that point on, they ordered another load of building materials, and they hired an armed guard, because that's what you have to do when there's lawlessness, right? If you want to defend your stuff, that's your job. That's your responsibility. And it's you know if. if and if another guy comes along and happens to be a better shot than your armed guard, maybe they're going to get the materials anyway. You don't want anarchy, right? You don't want it. Uh, the, the idea in an, in, in an anarchist situation, the, the idea of protecting the elderly, protecting the weak, that, that's all gone. You survive or you die, and, that, and that's, that's it. So human, instant, human government, therefore, is a blessing, it's a blessing, and God tells us that in his word, that it's a blessing to have some sort of order and rule. Now, let's go back in time. I, I just want to introduce, and if this feels a little bit like a college class this morning, I apologize, but let's, let's talk a little bit about how we think about or the, the different forms of government, okay? So Aristotle was actually very instrumental in thinking this through, and he came up with several different forms of government that, that were present on the earth. And here's some contrasts of those. There's, there's a monarchy. And the idea of a monarchy, I'm not, this is a very idealistic view, so just hear me out. Because when we think of kings, we all automatically think of tyrants. But there, there were such things in Israel anyway, and in other places on the earth, there have been monarchs who have been wise and good. They, for the most part, ruled for the well-being of their people. And so the idea of a monarchy in Aristotle's view is the wisest person is in charge. They may have people under them, governors and, and you know, area, area people that take care of different regions and states. But the idea of a monarchy is the wisest person rules the land. Now, again, oftentimes what comes to your mind with monarchy is the idea of tyranny. And tyranny is just instead of having a, a wise person ruling the land and doing good for the people, what you have is a person who's only interested in themselves. They're only interested in, in doing what is gonna keep them in power. And so if they have to be mean and nasty and ruthless, if they have to oppress their people, if, if all they want is wealth, and so they're gonna exact huge taxes and extract huge sums of money out of people and put their people into slavery, we've seen that. It's, we've seen that in the Bible, right? Uh, it's happened. And we've seen it in time. So people can be tyrannical. Uh, the, United, the, the, the colonists in the United States of America, or the colonists before the United States of America, the English colonists thought that King George was tyrannical. That's a subject for a, a different day, but that's, they, they thought that he was being tyrannical and therefore threw off him as their king and fought a war over it. 
Aristotle also recognized aristocracy versus oligarchy. And again, this is very idealized, but an aristocracy, the idea of an aristocracy to Aristotle was the wisest family rules the land, right? The wisest family rules the land. This, this is indicative of uh, uh, many places. Uh, the, the old Tsars of Russia, they would, they would have a dynasty and pass down things from generation to generation. One person was always supreme, but you know, oftentimes uh, there was uh, family members that were in charge of different areas and so on and so, so like that. But then uh, an aristocracy can become bad and become, become an oligarchy, where again, that family is just trying to use the people for their own selfish gains and will oppress them if necessary. And then this last one's pretty interesting. Aristotle envisioned something called polity versus democracy. Polity versus democracy. Now, before I even get into this one, let me, let me just ask the question. Does, is the United States of America a democracy? It is not. It is a representative republic, right? It's a representative republic. In other words, uh, unlike the church budget where we all get, all the members get to vote, uh, you and I don't vote on the U.S. federal budget, do we? We send representatives and senators to go and do that work. And so uh, the idea of polity is that the people, the people send the wisest people to go govern. Don't laugh too hard when I say that. The people send the wisest ones to go and, and govern. And then the idea of democracy, uh, Aristotle saw as bad, a straight democracy, because that basically gave uh, power to a lot of people who maybe weren't wise. And so every fool, every scoffer, every, every person who wasn't necessarily living their life in an ordered fashion would have an equal vote with a person who's very wise. And so he saw that as a bad thing, essentially mob rule. So again, Aristotle was very foundational in thinking about human government, human institutions. But then something interesting happened. This fellow named Machiavelli came along. Machiavelli was born in Florence, Italy in 1469, and he worked as all, he had all kinds of jobs. He was a secretary. He, first of all, he had a formal education, which that was a big deal. That, mean, that tells you that he was a person of means, or his family was. And he worked as a secretary, a diplomat, a military general for a while. Not very good at that one. And then uh, for a while, he spent some time in political exile. And he's famous for writing a book called The Prince. Machiavelli was. And his work, though very short, I think, I think the sum total of his work is a book called The Prince and a book called The Discourses. The, for, the, for the small amount of work that he put out, his influence has been absolutely huge in the world. This is what he thought. It was very revolutionary for his day. He thought that it was impossible to be a good leader and to be a good person at the same time in the traditional Christian sense of that word. Let me say that again. Machiavelli thought it was, a, it was almost impossible or, or impossible to be a good leader of a state and also at the same time a good person in the Christian sense. It was his observation that leaders who were too nice to their people did not rule for very long or did not rule them very well. He thought that the key role of a leader was to defend the state from internal and external threats. Therefore, Machiavelli said, the leader must know how to manage, know how to manage, know how to fight, and know how to create a certain reputation. 
Would you like to hear about the reputation? Okay, I could just uh, end it here. No, the reputation that he wanted to build was this. For a leader to maintain order, they must have the right blend, Machiavelli said, of being loved by their people, but also by being feared by their people. And so this is his famous quote. And here comes the question of whether it would be better to be loved than to be feared or feared rather than loved. It might perhaps be answered that we should wish to be both, but since love and fear can hardly exist together, if we must choose between them, it is far safer for it is far safer to be feared than to be loved. This was revolutionary thinking back in his day. Machiavelli thought that a leader had to know when to be good to their people and also when to be bad. In fact, he said a leader needs to know when to be ruthless. He pointed to a contemporary example of his time. A certain man had conquered a certain city, uh, and this was in Italy. A certain leader had conquered a certain city, and he left behind, he went, he went on to do some other work, and he left behind one of his mercenaries. And he told this mercenary fellow, I want you to, to establish law and order in this city. And so he did. This mercenary went about, and anybody, anybody who opposed the king, anybody who, who resisted this new ruler, he made a public spectacle and, and killed them in very public ways, oftentimes in front of their wives and children. He would kill people ruthlessly until order was established and fear was established in the city. And then the king came back to the city and took this mercenary and sawed him in half in the public square to let everybody know, I'm the good guy. See what he did there? That's twisted stuff, right? This king thought that he had to have everyone fear him, and but he also wanted to have a little bit of the people's love and affection. And so after he took this mercenary and killed him very publicly, he began to lower taxes and work for the good of the people and even established festivals and things that the, the, the community could come together and celebrate so that they would begin to begin to like or love or at least appreciate the king. He ruthlessly established fear in the people, and then took action to improve his reputation. Machiavelli's work was so so transformative, is not transformative, so controversial back in the day that the Roman Catholic Church banned it from being read for two hundred years. That's pretty. That's a pretty big deal. He banned. They banned it for two hundred years. But, and this is why I bring him up. Machiavelli is taught in political science classes today. Machiavelli is known or is considered by some to be the father of political science. I share this with you not to scare you or to, to talk just about a historical figure. I share this with you to help, we understand, help you understand how our leaders may be trained or, or trained to think today. Now, not every leader is like this, but how many times have you been watching the news and you've heard... I, I've heard, for example, the former prime minister of, of uh, Great Britain, Tony Blair, that he was referred to in the press as Machiavellian in his approach to government. Now, I don't think he killed anybody in the public square, but, but they thought that he was 
doing that blend of, of casting fear into the lives of his subjects and also uh, working on improving his reputation at the same time, all the time. He was ruthless sometimes. I, I share this with you just to help you th- see the type of thinking that has had a profound impact on this world. Now, the last person that I'm going to mention is Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford. And he's a little bit of a more wholesome figure. He's a, he's a pastor over in uh, Scotland. Uh, he lived back in the 1600s or born, right, I think, right at 1600. And he was a gospel preacher. And back then in, in Rutherford's days, uh, pastors were the primary thinkers. They, they, they thought and they reasoned and they wrote. And, um, and things were very controversial back then in terms of theological debates. And so if you were in a theological debate and you weren't on the right side, like the same side as the church, that may be very bad for your life. And he went through some tough times and was even uh, spent some time in, in, uh, in exile. But he, he also wrote on government. And he thought that unlike the leadership of the past, in, in, in other words, uh, having human beings who were supreme over us, he thought that we should strive for a time when the king is no longer the law, that but instead a time when the law was the king and even the king was subject to the law. And that's why he wrote this, uh, this treatise called Lex Rex, or I think that's Latin for the law is king. The law is king. And that, that was very influential on our founding fathers, the founding fathers of the United States, to craft a constitution, to frame a constitution uh, that, that did not have in the government a supreme leader so to speak. We have a president of the United States, but our president is put in check by the legislative branch and the judicial branch, right? The, the House of Representatives, then the Senate and the judiciary and the Supreme Court in the, uh, in the legislative, sorry, the House and Senate in the legislative and the Supreme Court in the judiciary. So, He's famous. Uh, now, by the way, I just want to stop right here and pause. If, if, if one of your goals in this study is to try to begin to cultivate hope in your life, you might want to read some Samuel Rutherford. Uh, Samuel Rutherford went through some extraordinarily tough times in his life, and he always was a man who was known to keep his eyes fixed on our good and wonderful God. And so he's famous for, for this quote. He said, praise God for the hammer the file and the furnace. He's talking there about trials in our lives, right? The hammer molds us, the file sharpens, sharpens us, and the fire tempers us. Um, I think there was another, I think there was another uh, quote that he had, and it goes something like this. When life puts you in the deepest, darkest pit, the deepest, darkest dungeon, the Lord will show you there the finest wines. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Uh, But but he seemed to, in any circumstance that he found himself in, he seemed to find hope in the Lord. So you can find online, you can go to a bookstore or you can go to uh, online and you can find a a book of his called The Letters of Samuel Rutherford. And uh, in in that book, he wrote as a pastor to people who are going through tremendous suffering and difficulty. And he took that opportunity to encourage people in their faith, and uh, it's, a, it's a very hopeful and encouraging lesson. 
Now, the area of the formation of human government is huge. There's so much here, I don't have time to go through anything. This is just a, I'm, I'm just skipping across the, skipping across the high spots here. It's an entire field of study. I simply point to what I've said this morning to help you recognize that there are many different forms of human government out there, and Peter is telling Christians to submit to these human governments. However, let's all admit that that brings up a conflict inside of us. That brings up a conflict inside of us because our, our rulers oftentimes do not behave biblically. Can I get an amen? They don't. They don't behave biblically. And so there's this conflict inside of us, right? Because should we listen to leaders that don't behave biblically when they're telling us what to do? Or how should we think about this? Because it goes on, Peter goes on to say, be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or governors who are sent by him, here it is, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Well, those are specific words, evil and good. They have meaning to us as Christians. God's word describes what is evil and good. So let's, let's, let's get into this next point. And, and again, I'm gonna talk about a lot of this next week, but as just as a beginning, I want us to think about just for a few minutes our government in the United States in terms of what is evil and what is good. So let's think about our government here in the United States of America. I'm gonna ask you a series of questions and these questions aren't designed for you to answer out loud, but I want you to think along with me and see if you get it. This was very helpful for me. So let's think about our government in terms of its design in terms of its design. In other words, when our founding fathers wrote what they wrote and they put together the Constitution, we were told that there was gonna be a government of the people, for the people, by the people. And so I asked myself questions. The first question I asked myself is, is that the way our government is functioning today? Is our government effectively of the people, for the people, and by the people? It's just, a, I'm just asking questions. I'm not... I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to prepare to make an answer here. I also understand, or we, we understand as people, as a church that's been through things like the, tr the Truth Project, that, that God has ordained in his word that, that there's different spheres of life, right? There's the government sphere, there's the family sphere, there's the church sphere. And, and that, you know, if you go through that study in apologetics, and I have it in my office, it's on DVD, so it's a bit dated. I don't know if it's on a streaming service, but um, but if you go through the Truth, Truth Project, what we learn in there is that life works best when each entity kind of stays within its sphere, right? And so the government should not be, again, ideally speaking, encroaching in the family or encroaching in the church. And so I might ask you the question, is that true today in the United States of America? Is the government keeping, keeping out of matters that pertain to the family and the church? Uh, our government was designed by men who knew the danger of having a supreme leader. And so they intentionally designed 
three co-equal branches of government, the, the executive, the president, and his staff, the legislative, and the judiciary. And those three co-equal branches were designed to, to keep each other in check. And so I, I asked this question. That's the original design. Is it working? In other words, is there one entity, one of those three entities that are making decisions that either go outside the sphere of the Constitution or they go outside of, they, they breach into the sphere of the family, the church, and the other branches aren't stopping or restraining that? Is that happening today? Is that happening today? Or is there pretty common agreement amongst scholars, amongst thinkers, amongst people who can read the plain reading of the Constitution and say, this was not right. This was, this was done in an unconstitutional fashion, but the other two branches of government aren't restricting it. They're not doing anything about it. I ask you the question. I ask you the question in terms of uh, how's our government doing in terms of good and evil? In other words, again, people like Samuel Rutherford, others thought that what's going to be best for us is that if, if, if the government, if, if, if a, any human institution, but the United States, because that's what we're talking about, if they would recognize what God has said as good, as good, and what God had says is evil, as evil, if they would recognize that and kind of make laws and, and policies in line with that. And so I might ask you the question, Today, is that what's going on in the government? Is our government recognizing what God has said is good and evil, or is our government making it up themselves? I ask you the question. Now, uh, I, I want to talk just a minute about a, a few things, but one of the things is a, 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 there's, there's commentators that I read. Listen, uh, if you go to Amazon or you go to a bookstore and you want to pick up a book written by a Christian that talks about how we should be resisting the government right now, they're a dime a dozen, and I can find them for you. And I've got some in my library. They're in my heresy section. I, I, talking about how we should resist the government and all these kinds of things. And I'm telling you, uh, I was, was re-looking at one of them the other day, and, the, and their biblical argument fell apart on page five completely fell apart, but they, they rode that theological argument all the way through the book. And, and the argument that this guy was making was is that Christians should only obey government if the government is just. In other words, if the government is behaving biblically, then we can obey them, submit to them. If, obey, sorry, obey and submit are not the same thing, okay? So we can submit to them if they are just, in other words, if the government is doing biblical things and punishing unbiblical things, but otherwise we don't have to. We can, we can disregard that. That is a false idea, and I'll, I'll get more into that in a second. I think it's a false dichotomy. Let's, let's, let's just go ahead and talk about that for a minute. One of the hardest things, one of the hardest things that, that happens to me as a pastor is somebody will come up to me and they will want to talk about salvation and they'll want to talk about Calvinism and Arminianism, right? And they'll, and they'll want me to give them a two-sentence answer in five minutes, right? This happens to you, Sean. People want to talk about salvation, and, and they want to talk about it where, where Calvinism is more the idea of God is sovereign, right? He is the one that saves. And, and Arminianism is oftentimes cast as a simply this, is that 
man makes the decision to follow Christ, right? That's, those are very oversimplified. You have to read all kinds of books to, to really figure out what's being said there. But, but this is basically the argument, is one side is saying, it's God who saved me, it's God who came into my life, it's God, and there's truth to that. And there's the other side saying, I made the decision to follow Christ, and there's truth to that. And they wanna get on either side of that debate and just camp there and not recognize the tension, right? Because the reality of the situation is that God's word has told us that both of those things are true at the same time, right? God is sovereign, he is in control, but we are responsible for our actions. And so that same debate that goes on within the realm of salvation also happens to go on in the realm of government. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that debate has gone on for millennia. Uh, so what I'm talking about. Back during the time of the monarchs, uh, the Tsars and the, the kings of England and all this kind of stuff, there was this idea that was called the divine right. Meaning, God has put my family, God has made me king, and so I can do what I want because God has sovereignly placed me here, and so I will rule because that's, I have the divine right. Uh, it's by God's sovereignty that I've been placed here. Now, the other side of that coin is just rule, right? Is, is I will, it, when the ruler fails to praise good and to punish evil, as, and I wanna be careful here to say, as God defines it, when the ruler fails to praise good as God defines good and punish evil as God defines evil, then we can remove that person, right? God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. And I wanna, I, I wanna share with you <laughs> One commentator said this, and I so appreciate it. He said, the history of 1 Peter 2 and of Romans 13, the history of Romans, uh, 1 Peter 2, you know, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, and Romans 13, which says much the same thing, though written by Paul. The history of these passages is for people to try to ignore the plain reading of the text try to, to argue one way or the other, the divine right way or the just rule way. And what I'm inviting you to understand as we move into next week is that there's a tension there. There's a tension there. We'll get into that. And oftentimes we have to just admit to ourselves, folks, that, and ask ourselves this question. Do our, do our leaders even understand what good is as God has defined it? Do they even understand? I remember there was, I, I read a story one time about a man and his whole life, he's a retired pastor and his whole life was spent going to Washington DC and giving seminars to journalists and to politicians and giving them a crash course in Christianity because they didn't know what, anything about it. And so he would give them the basics of Christianity just so that they could think intelligently about a good chunk of their population as leaders in the country and to give journalists some basic tools to work with as they wrote on the subject of religion. So sometimes they just don't know. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap this up just with some more questions. In terms of honesty, again, I'm asking you the question, do our leaders here in the United States routinely lie to us? Don't laugh or chuckle. I see you out there with a smirk on your face. Do they routinely lie to us or not? Are there things being made up and being passed off to us as true? 
Are we, t- are we being told sometimes to trust the science when what they really mean by that is, here's a scientist who has made a pronouncement, you should trust him or her, which is not science. Do our leaders really look at the long-term impact of the things that they're doing and the lies that they're telling? In terms of service, in terms of service, are our leaders really serving us, the people, or are they serving some other special interest? Don't know. It's a question. It comes up a lot. In terms of policy direction, and I find this one fascinating. I find this one fascinating. Does anybody know roughly uh, uh, where are we at? Would, what, what percentage of the country, just off the top of your head, what percentage of the country would you think leans Republican? Roughly, what percent of the country leans Republican? 35? Okay, so the other question is, what, what part of the country do you think leans Democrat? What's the, roughly the percentage right now in this country? We just went through an election, folks. Just think of the presidential election. Where are we at? We're roughly where? 50-50, right? You understand this, right? I know it's different in different states, but the election kind of came down to, it was, a, it was a squeaker, right? It's still being disputed. And so we're in this situation where uh, things are pretty close. The, 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 uh, the, the division in our country is, is, is about 50-50. And yet, Republican or Democrat, when somebody gets elected into office, they immediately get in front of a TV camera and say, the American people have spoken. Uh, I, I now have a mandate to implement all these policies, whether they're conservative policies or, or Democrat policies. I now have a mandate from the American people to implement all these things. Is that true? If you got elected by like 50 plus 1%, or are our leaders looking at the electorate, looking at the people that they serve going, eh, this policy w- would work for most of us. We can reach agreement on this mostly across the country or we... No, that's not what our leaders do. They, they, they go into a policy direction that serves a certain agenda. What about this? This is sensitive these days. What about uh, the, in terms of equal treatment under the law? And the question I would ask is, is everyone who breaks the same law treated equally in this country today? That's the design of the country. That's what we're supposed to be doing but I would argue that that might not be the case right now. And then also in terms of corruption, in terms of corruption. And, and to this, I would ask the question, have we seen evidence of citizens like you and me entering into the political world by getting elected into an office and, and then upon entering that, that public service as a middle-class human being, winding up as someone who has multiple estates multiple properties, and none of them would be considered middle class. And this is the career, being a representative, being a senator, being a president, this is a career that's often referred to as public service. Now, I asked the question earlier today, what is government and how should we think about our government in the United States of America? Uh, because this passage talks about government and it talks about the, the government is designed to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. 
And my answer to the question is, human government is a God-given blessing. I put it there from God, that's redundant, against anarchy. It's a wonderful thing. We should thank God every day that we have human government in the United States of America because it, it's a preventative. It's a, it's, it's, it keeps us from falling into anarchy, which I promise you we do not want. But on the backside of that, it is reasonable to conclude that the government of the United States is moving at increasing speed away from being good. I'm not talking about being good in its original design. I think it was good in its original design. I'm talking about being good as God defines what is good and being evil as what God defines evil. Now, I wanna pause right here before I make application and just say this. If you put on the Exodus mindset, if you put that on as your lens, your, your filter for life, then what that will do to you, what that will help you to understand is what we're longing for is not a repaired government here. That would be a good thing if things got better here. What we're longing for is when the perfect, when we're in the presence of the perfect leader, the perfect one who is without sin. Because the, if, if you can't face up to this reality, if you can't square yourself to this notion, then you, do, you haven't really understood the gospel. And that's this. If you, yes, you were placed in a position of power like the president of the United States tomorrow and were confronted with the same decisions that he or she had to make, if you think that you're as pure and as clean as the wind-driven snow and you would do everything according to Hoyle, according to God's word, and you would not have any corruption in your life whatsoever, you don't understand your own heart, right? We are all sinners. From the president of the United States to the man who stands in this pulpit, we are all sinners. And our only hope and this is the most wonderful news that I could ever share with you, but, they, but our only hope is, is in the one who is perfect, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and has, and has offered us not a way of salvation that depends on our ability to behave, but it depends on him and, and us placing our faith in him our trust in him to save us. And oh, what a day it'll be when we get to see him in glory and we no longer need this broken, messed up, corrupt, dishonest human government that is just a shadow of what God's ultimate reign and rule is going to be. I say that to encourage us to think ahead to that day and to be hopeful. So by way of application, two quick questions. Number one is, how can you show gratitude for the government that God has blessed us with? You know, every day there are human beings that get up in this community and they go and they go down to city council and they make sure that zoning ordinances are being upheld so that the sewers don't fail us and the storm drains all work. And there's, there's, there's people that go and, and clean out those storm drains and there's law enforcement officers that pull over people that are driving way too fast on 23 and maybe weaving in and out of traffic. And they, and they pull those folks over and they approach them not knowing what's going to happen when they get to the window, right? They put their lives on the line. We need to be thankful and grateful both to God and to these folks 
because they are keeping us from anarchy, and that's a good thing. So figure out a way to show gratitude. Gratitude to God and gratitude to our government leaders. And then secondly, as you observe what has become of the U.S. government and, and, and that as it has departed from God's word, how does that provide a warning to you personally? I'm at a place, and I'm, I'm, this is, I'm just bearing testimony to you today. I'm at a place where I have, I have made a list of all the news organizations I will no longer watch. I just won't watch them because it's all lies. And I wonder often, how have we gotten to this? Because I, I know many people do watch these things, and they take these things to be real. Like that, that we're being told the truth by these news organizations and that it's not propaganda. And I wonder, how did we get here when there's such outlandish things being told to us? And then I, I am reminded that to the extent that our, our government and our media has departed from the way of God, the word of God, it's become like that. And then I, and I, then I, then I turn to myself, because I'm always the introspective one, right? I turn to myself and go, but what am I doing in my life that's not consistent with God's word? And how is that corrupting me? How's it corrupting the words that are coming out of my mouth? How's it co- corrupting the way I husband my wife and parent my children? So all I can tell you is, is that what we're seeing going on in our world today should be a real reminder that our job is not to just mouth the words, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, but to be that person, to strive to try to be a follower by living according to his word. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. We thank you for your word, so informative, instructive. It's everything that we need, and we so thank you for it. Father, I do pray that as we think uh, about our human government, that you would help us to walk through this time of exile on the earth in an attitude of of thankfulness, gratitude for the fact that we do have human government and and there is order maintained and and we get to operate our lives. We got to drive to church on roads that were created by that government. We we got to assemble here today in a a city uh, where there's government, uh, government all around that's making sure that there's proper codes being followed and buildings aren't collapsing. and, And so we're thankful for that. And let us walk in that gratitude But Father, help us to also recognize the realities of what are going on, what's going on around us, and that things are eroding, and and to be folks that live differently so that we can inspire others to follow Christ and, and to perhaps turn around. And that when the world looks at us, they may see you and want it, and want to be like you. Father, that's a tough, that's a tough road to hoe uh, for us, and, and we need your help to do it. So be with us and give us strength as we look into your word and try to live according to it. In Jesus' name, amen.